Pauline, give me some of your tots. I ate his liver with some fava beans. Nice candy. Combo, pan fry, deep fry, stir fry. Yummy! Hello, and welcome to The Cooking Show. Since this is the first episode, I feel that it's important to put out like a primer or set the intention of the show so I can refer new listeners back to episode one to know like what the deal is, like how this works. As you can deduce from the title, this is a cooking show. Duh, right? Now you may be thinking, what's the point of a cooking podcast? Isn't that straining the genre a bit? Obviously, the preparation of food works well with video. There are multiple cable networks dedicated to cooking and a million YouTube channels to the same purpose. Doing a cooking show via podcast might seem a bit pointless, like doing a music streaming service, but instead of listening to the music, you just see the notes scroll across your screen. Like, hey, if you know music, you can imagine what this sounds like, right? <laughs> so how is this supposed to work? Um, well, there's basically two components to this with podcasts. You think of it as purely an audio format, right? Clearly it's, it's like on demand internet radio. However, there's another aspect to podcasts that is really important, particularly for this project. And that aspect is a drum roll, please show notes, baby. And we'll get to that in a second, but first the point of the show. My job via the audio broadcast is to introduce a recipe and make it sound like something that you want to make yourself. I should detail the merits of the dish, perhaps a little background information like where it's from or what role it played in the culture it originates from, and then walk you through making the dish. I don't expect you to be listening to the podcast while you're cooking. That would be like ridiculous. You'd be rewinding and replaying segments over and over again until you're like absolutely sick of hearing my voice. Instead, I'm supposed to reassure you that an esoteric or complex dish is something you can conquer with a trip to the grocery store and an afternoon in the kitchen. Talking through the preparation of a recipe should lay down some familiarity with the dish while also pointing out the caveats or explaining why certain things are done a certain way. It's like, um, this may seem super daunting in its entirety, but this part is really easy and passive. So you can spend most of your attention and energy making this part really good, or like you need to mix this ingredient until it looks a certain way. And it may feel like it's never going to happen, but you got to keep at it and it'll just come together eventually after a couple minutes or whatever. I'm just here for the walkthrough basically, and to reassure you along the way, the episodes come out early on Monday. So maybe you listen to the, the podcast on your commute or while you're working or whatever. Maybe an episode strikes a chord with you and you're like, I am going to make this on Saturday. You've listened to my nonchalant expose of the process and you feel confident and motivated to make the thing. Cool. Uh, also, this podcast is PG. I want it to be able to uh, appeal to as broad an audience as possible. So I'm going to watch my language and keep things appropriate for all ages. I believe that cooking is an essential skill that should be part of everyone's day-to-day -day life. And it's something that should be shared with the whole family. 
So nothing brings me more happiness than seeing children getting involved with food and the preparation of it. Imagine it's like your wife's birthday this weekend. You know there's an episode of The Cooking Show that can that covers her favorite meal. So you pull up that episode on your phone, you send it to your son in a text that says, hey, listen to this podcast. We'll go grocery shopping this week and we're going to make this for mom's birthday on Saturday. Rest assured, I won't be dropping any F-bombs in the podcast that you just sent to your kid, right? Now, for the important lesser known component of the podcast, the show notes, this is where the real magic happens, right? Regardless of where you're listening to podcasts, whether it's you know Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Castro, Downcast, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or whatever, in addition to the audio file, you also get the text metadata, also known as the show notes. Most show notes use this for links to their sponsors, links to information they talk about on the podcast, or like photos of things that they're talking about, whatever, just auxiliary information. So you can go and see what's being discussed. Sometimes they, they'll have timestamps or whatever, but it's just text that is relevant to the episode that uh, accompanies it. For this show, the show notes are going to be the recipe, the instructions, pertinent information about the dish, like special equipment uh, that you need or specific places to buy ingredients if they aren't easily available at the grocery store. Additionally, there will probably be a link to an imager album of photos that illustrate the steps in making the dish. I'll try to include this whenever possible. Um, Imager is just like a file hosting. Technically it's a social network, but you don't have to like make an account or anything. You just click the link, it opens up an album and and there'll be, um, there'll be captions explaining what's going on just so you can visualize like what it is that I was talking about. Um, Probably won't have that for every episode, but, you know, whenever something is uh, important to see, um, I'll definitely include that. So these things all together should make it feel like it's not the first time you've prepared the recipe, right? Uh, Even if it totally is. The idea is to create a familiarity and a confidence going into it, a desire to make a particular dish. And, um, and then giving you a, a static set of instructions that you can refer, refer to later. The show notes, you know, you can read them in your podcast player, or you can just go to our website, thecookingshow.fm, and the show notes are attached to each episode. That way, like I said, you can copy them to like a note on your phone. You can have a laptop open with the text, or you can print them out, whatever you want to do so that it's, it's handy and it's useful and it's convenient. There's a you know, common joke about cooking blogs in that you want a recipe for muffins, but you have to scroll through a novel about the author's life to get to the muffin recipe, you know? This kind of turns that model on its head. The actual, the podcast, like the the audio part is the narration that's supposed to set the stage for the dish. You listen to it while you're driving or working, walking the dog, and it turns you on to making the food. And when it comes to getting down to business, the show notes are there. It's like, you know, just the facts, ma'am. So that's the actual, uh, the actionable material. Sort of like Ikea instructions, but for duck confit or asabuco with risotto. All right. So that's the part that I want all new listeners to hear. And that's why I'm referring everyone back to episode numero uno. I guess I should have something compelling on the first episode, right? Like the actual dish that we're making to launch this podcast. And I figure, what is 
what has some like really universal appeal? What is something that most people enjoy, but not a lot of people have made? Y'all like bacon, right? So do you know how good and relatively easy it is to make your own bacon at home? We're going to find out. Super simple, only requires a handful of ingredients, and the result blows grocery store bacon out of the water. For this recipe, let's talk about specialized equipment first. The only thing you absolutely need is a way to smoke your slab of bacon after we you know, put together all the ingredients. If you have an actual smoker, like a Traeger or Rectech or Pit Boss, something like that, that's great. If you happen to have a smokehouse like I do, fantastic. But I doubt that you need me to tell you how to make bacon if you are currently in possession of a bacon-making building. You know what I mean? If you don't have those things, you can make this happen with just a grill. But you'll have to be a little bit more finicky and hands-on with the smoking process so that you control the temperature in, a, in like a regular grill, whether it's a Weber or a propane grill or whatever. So a smoker is basically required. It would be really useful if you also had a vacuum sealer. If you don't, uh, you can definitely do this with just large Ziploc bags or even um, saran wrap. A vac sealer just really works in a straightforward and concise sort of way for like the curing process. It keeps all the, the juices in so that you're not making a mess of your refrigerator. Um, and it, it seals everything up and does, does the job more effectively. But you can use big zip, Ziploc bags and saran wrap or whatever. We'll talk about that. A scale. In the kitchen is a good idea anytime. It's super important for things like uh, that are mathematical in nature. Um, we'll be measuring out ingredients based on a proportion of weight. And we'll explain all this, but most kitchen scales will be digital. They'll allow you to measure ounces, grams, combination of pounds and ounces, or kilograms and grams, usually up to like five to 10 pounds. Um, and this recipe is going to be essentially for five to eight pounds. So um, having a, a digital kitchen scale, fantastic. Finally, you, you don't need a meat slicer to make your own bacon. But if you happen to have one, wow, good job. You know, you can definitely slice bacon with a regular knife on a cutting board. And um, you should just prepare for that eventuality. You know, that we are going to be cutting this with a knife. It's going to be rustic. It's going to be thick. It's going to be delicious. You're going to love it. All right, before we get to the full list of ingredients, there are two that are essential to the recipe, but also not just something that you can pick up at any old grocery store within reason. First is pork belly. You'll want to make sure that you can get pork belly first um, because without it, you're not going to be making bacon. <laughs> Some grocery stores will have it like no problem. Other places, they never have it in stock or it's seasonal, just random, you know, whatever. So if, if you can't get it at your grocery store, you might want to uh, go to an actual butcher shop. But make sure you call before you go in because it's something that some shops don't carry as a matter of course, but they can definitely get it for you within like a day or three. Uh, a lot of places like my old butcher shop, um, if you got me in between when we received raw pork belly and when we turned it into bacon, you could buy pork belly from Heritage Craft Butchers. But we turned all of our pork belly into bacon because we sold a lot of bacon. Um, so you would want to call and say, hey, next week, can I get a five pound slab of pork belly or a whole slab of pork belly or whatever? 
All right, second ingredient that's really important, it requires a little bit of forethought, is sodium nitrite. This goes by different names. You get uh, sodium nitrite, prog powder number one, pink salt number one, curing salt number one. Really important, this is not just pink Himalayan salt, right? I mean, you, just because the salt is pink doesn't mean it's pink salt. This is specifically a blend of sodium nitrite and table salt and a, a pink coloring that prevents it from being mistaken as regular salt if you just have it on hand. Technically, sodium nitrite is toxic in large amounts. Luckily, we're using a tiny little amount and the specific role that it plays in the recipe is to prevent botulism. So using it in a responsible quantity is going to prevent literally a life-ending foodborne illness. And uh, it's not going to cause you any problems as far as health-wise. Uh, that's why we're using such a small amount measured precisely. Sodium nitrite prevents the growth of the C. botulinum bacteria. It's used in cured and cooked foods like bacon, ham, kielbasa, you know, if you're making things like uh, prosciutto or salami, things that aren't cooked, there's a variation on sodium nitrate that you would use. It's basically your, your curing salt number two. All those names that I gave you for it, pink salt, prog powder, et cetera, et cetera. It's that with the number two for the uncooked things. But since we're making a cooked product, you want curing salt number one, number one, super important. Only I think 3.75%, three and three quarters percent of the pink salt mixture is actual sodium nitrite. The rest of it is plain old table salt, NaCl, sodium chloride. We'll talk about measuring out the ingredients in a bit, but we'll, we'll be adding this at a rate of only one quarter of 1% of the weight of the meat. And you don't have to worry about all these proportions and stuff on the audio segment of the podcast here. All this will be clearly explained in, in the show notes with the recipe. The measurements are simple. I basically want to express how little of this ingredient you'll actually use. Despite the fact that it's super important from a food safety perspective, um, uh, the amount that you need to prevent the, the growth of the food poisoning bacteria is extremely low. You can get this on Amazon or from sausagemaker.com. I'll, I'll put links of this in the show notes. But the thing to remember is that it's essential, number one, and that if you're ordering it, it may take two to three days to receive it. So you can't make it without this ingredient. So you definitely want to get this ordered uh, Monday, Tuesday, or whatever. If you're making this recipe on the weekend, give yourself enough time to receive it because otherwise you're going to be waiting around for it. You don't want to make the, this product without your sodium nitrite. Also, it's not expensive. It's cheap. I can't, I can't remember off the top of my head. I know that uh, we would buy five pound uh, containers of this at a time and it might cost 15 or 20 bucks for that smaller amounts for you know like 20 pounds of of, of meat are going to be you know a couple bucks not a big deal all right so let's talk about how we actually calculate the ingredients before we get into what the ingredients are with a recipe like this it's important to figure out how much of each ingredient you're going to use based on how much pork belly you have because that's variable it's not it's not a thing where like you're just uh 
seasoning it, you're curing it, you're transforming it. So you want to have uh, some of these things nailed down specifically to a, a percentage of the total volume of the thing that you're making or the total mass, I suppose. This is how you get such a high quality product compared to the store-bought stuff. You can be super precise with the flavors and you can also, you can control for the quality of the ingredients. You can get really high quality uh, black pepper, for example. The curing process is fundamentally different with a high quality product like what we're making here compared with a mass produced commodity like grocery store bacon when big commercial producers make bacon they tend to dump tons of pork bellies into a stainless steel vacuum tumbler with a brine of salt and sugar and lots of water they suck the air out and the bellies are tumbled like in a like a clothes dryer the battering of the meat within the vacuum causes the bellies to absorb the brine very quickly. This is why they're able to turn around this product in a very short amount of time compared to this longer and slower process that we're going to employ. However, you have the quick tur turnover, but the slabs of bacon have a lot more water in them um, on the back end when, it, when this comes out as a finished product compared to what they did before they are processed. And that is why store-bought bacon curls up in the pan and gets really wavy and takes on that classic bacon appearance of the, of the crinkled edges. As it gets hot, all that water that it has retained during that brining process is coming out and boiling off as the, the meat and the fat is shrinking and curling up because you're removing a lot, of, a lot of the mass of the bacon by boiling off the water that is retained. The way we're making bacon, it's a dry cure method. When your bacon is ready to smoke, it will have less moisture content than the raw pork that it started off as. Basically, our spice kit is all dry ingredients. We're not adding water to the bacon. So that when you, when you cook your finished bacon, it will stay flat in the pan. It'll cook better at lower heat because you're not searing the meat and rendering, you're, you're, you're searing the meat and rendering the fat, but you're not boiling off all that water. The flavors are going to be really concentrated. They're bold and savory. The texture is going to be meaty and substantial. It's a really a night and day difference compared to store-bought, and it's all owed to the process and the ingredients. Now, most pork bellies that you get are going to come in between like five and eight pounds, probably closer to eight. Generally, I find that eight pounds is a, is a reasonable average for a whole slab if they're just you know, handing it over as like a pass-through sale to you. However, you can specify for some places like, hey, I want five pounds of pork belly, and then they'll they'll trim it up and, and, and deliver it to you. Not deliver it to you, but they'll have it ready for you, um, already, you know, measured out to five pounds. So for the sake of talking through the measurements, I'm going to use a five-pound pork belly as the example. And if you end up getting like seven pounds or eight pounds or 8.25 or whatever, you can either trim off the extra so that you're working with five pounds, or you can just apply the math in the same way as what I'm going to present it to you as, um, but just do it for, you know, whatever your pork belly weighs. If you do end up trimming it and you end up with two pounds of, of pork belly trim, that's a fantastic ingredient to just cook with. Uh, roasted, braised, uh, however, pork belly is fantastic, even when it hasn't been turned into bacon, you know? All right, so we have five pounds of pork belly, and there are 16 ounces in a pound, right? So we have 80 ounces of pork belly that we're working with. The seasonings we're going to use are kosher salt, 
the aforementioned curing salt, black pepper, granulated garlic, thyme, and brown sugar. If you want to add other things, feel free. Just add them, add them at a rate of a quarter of a percent, which is 0.2 ounces for five pounds, right? Two-tenths of an ounce. So if it's 0 0.0025, that's one quarter of 1% multiplied by 80 ounces, you'll end up with 0.2. So two-tenths of an 20% of an ounce, two-tenths of an ounce, 0.2 ounces, however you want to, to say it, that's what you're going to add the any auxiliary ingredients for. You, know, you can add nutmeg or allspice, bay leaf or whatever. And at a quarter of a percent, it's not going to overpower the recipe. The only thing that's really important from a food safety perspective in this recipe is the kosher salt and the curing salt. Those you want to be very precise with and, and use only the amount that you'd need, not, no more, no less. When it comes to other flavors, you know, if you're adding rosemary to your, to your recipe, I'm saying add it at a rate of a quarter of a percent so that it doesn't overpower the, the recipe. But if you added four pounds of rosemary, it's not going to result in an unsafe product. It's just going to result in a product that probably doesn't taste as good as it could, you know? All right. So the dry ingredients can be measured out and then combined in a bowl. It will create a dry sp spice rub, more or less, or the cure kit, spice kit, however you want to refer to it. So here are the proportions for each ingredient. And remember, this is in the show notes and, uh, and you'll be able to figure out the math on this. The kosher salt is going to be added at two and a half percent of the weight of the pork belly. The curing salt, one quarter of 1%. Black pepper, 1%. Granulated garlic, 1%. Thyme, a half a percent. And brown sugar, 1%. So if we're using five pounds of pork belly, it's going to be two ounces of kosher salt, 0.2 ounces of curing salt, 0.8 ounces of black pepper, 0.8 ounces of granulated garlic, 0.4 ounces of thyme, and 0.8 ounces of brown sugar. Easy breezy. Now remember, this is specifically for five pounds of pork belly. If you have more or less pork, you get the total ounces, multiply that by the rate, okay? Remember, the pink salt is one quarter of 1%. So on a calculator, it would be 0 0.0025 multiplied by the weight of the pork. That's really important, so you don't want to mess it up. <laughs> Once you have your cure, like slash spice kit, whatever, mixed up, we got to get the pork belly ready to receive it. If you have a, a vacuum sealer, you get the pork belly into a prepared vacuum bag, leave it open, obviously, since we have to add the spices. But if you're using a big, like a gallon or two gallon Ziploc bag, get your belly in that. If you're using saran wrap, get a good foundation of saran wrap laid down, like kind of just multiple layers, all maybe crisscross pattern so that you can lay your pork belly directly on it and lay, your, lay the belly in the middle of that saran wrap. All right, so you're gonna use 100% of the dry spice mix. Remember, because you measured it out based on the weight of the pork belly, you want to use all of it. That'll ensure that you have the right amount of cure, the right amount of salt, and then all the flavors that go into it. You want to completely coat the pork belly on all sides. Now, your pork belly is probably going to have a meaty side and a fatty side, right? Start by applying your spices to the meaty side. The reason is that the salt and the cure will absorb better through the meat 
but you still want to rub this mixture on the fatty side also, but you want to make sure that you're getting enough on the, on the meaty side of the pork belly that you get good penetration from the salt and the cure and everything. Once you're finished with that and you get all your, you used all your spice kit, it's all covering the whole thing. You want to vacuum seal your bag if you're using a vac sealer. Um, if you're using a Ziploc, press as much air out of it as possible and then seal it up. If it's saran wrap, uh, wrap it very tightly, uh, get a lot of layers going around there. If you're using saran wrap, be beware that you'll have um, some leakage as the belly cures and expresses liquid. So if you put that in like a roasting pan or some sort of a container in the refrigerator, that'll ensure that you don't get like a bunch of drippings going all over the place in your fridge. If you're vac sealing, um, you're probably not going to have to worry about that as long as you have a good seal on it. If you're using the Ziploc bag, you do want to be careful because you can get, you can spring a leak in the Ziploc, but for the most part, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be fairly, um, uh, tight and hermetically sealed, so to speak. The reason that we like to use uh, a vac sealer for this is that by creating a vacuum in, in the bag, it's going to ensure, number one, you're going to make sure that you don't have any oxidation. But number two, it's going to ensure that the pork belly has constant contact with all of the ingredients, even as it creates a brine by giving up liquid during the osmosis process. Um, you'll have good contact and, and good even penetration of the cure. All right, you're going to put that pork belly all sealed up in the refrigerator for 14 days. Now, technically, 10 days is probably sufficient, but I'm assuming that a lot of these projects are going to be prepped on a weekend. So you'll want to also have a weekend day as your, as your smoking day. So if you start it on a Saturday, 14 days later, it'll bring you back to the same day of the week that you started on. And you know how we measured the ingredients based on the weight of the meat? That ensures that you won't oversalt the pork. So if two weeks rolls around, and you just can't manage to get it into the smoker that weekend, another week or two or even four isn't going to hurt anything. The sodium nitrite is preventing bad bacteria from growing, and the whole thing is refrigerated, so that's preventing bacteria from growing. And the 2.5% kosher salt is enough to get the bacon flavor. Uh, it's enough to get it up to the appropriate level of saltiness, but it's not enough to make it too salty. So the the, the curing method that we're using here is called equilibrium curing. Um, and that gives you a lot of wiggle room um, on the cure time if you run over the minimum prescribed uh, amount of time that something should be in cure. So don't worry about it. If you, if you have to let it go another week because something pops up, it'll be okay. When it comes to like time to smoke your bacon, you'll want to carefully remove it from the bag it was curing in. There will be a decent amount of brine accumulated in the bag. Discard that. It's water, it's salt, it's a bunch of stuff, whatever. Um, it'll just rust your pipes. You don't, you don't need to like baste your, your, your pork belly with the, with the brine juices. Um, that is a flavorless product that's coming out of, of your bacon and you've concentrated your bacon flavor by discarding that water. You can wipe the surface of the raw bacon down if you want, like with a paper towel, if you have accumulated thyme and pepper and garlic or whatever, but it's really not necessary. Um, That'll just be a nice uh, flavor crust on the outside of your bacon once it's smoked. 
So you can just leave that on there, just discard the brine. So you can smoke this on your choice of wood. Um, I personally prefer hickory, but you could use oak, apple, or even mesquite if you wanted. Uh, just be aware of like what flavor that's going to impart on the finished uh, product. I generally aim for a 275 degree smoking temperature until the internal temperature of the bacon is 155 degrees. And that's important. Um, well, technically, you only need to get this up to 135 degrees since you will be cooking the finished product. Like you'll take the slices of bacon and cook them. So you don't have to do like the full um, temperature control up to like 155 or 165. However, the hot smoking process changes the composition of the pork belly. The fat slowly melts and renders a little bit while you're while you're smoking it. And then afterwards, you're going to chill this down to refrigerator temperature. The fat will sort of um, reconstitute itself. It'll tighten up and it'll get dense and buttery. If you only smoke the belly to 135, it'll tend to be kind of soft and floppy. It'll be difficult to slice or just difficult to slice evenly. But if you go up to 155, it, once it cools down, it'll be denser and easier to slice. It's, it's, a, it's a texture thing is for that temperature. The smoking process should take uh, anywhere from three to five hours. And this is highly dependent on how much space is inside of your smoker, uh, the airflow, um, how evenly it holds the temperature. You know, with a big commercial smokehouse, we could pretty much nail it in three hours. If you're doing it in like my smokehouse, which is just a, a, a cedar corn crib, basically, you might need more time because uh, there's drafts and, and, and convection currents or whatever. Use a probe thermometer and just be patient, you know? If you're rigging up a smoker with a grill, the main thing is to keep the, the heat gentle and indirect. When it comes up to temperature, put it in the refrigerator uncovered and allow it to cool down completely. That should take about six hours, but I would just say let it go over the, overnight, you know? The following day, uh, I'm going to say that you're definitely going to want to cut a bunch of slices up for breakfast. I mean, why make bacon if you're not going to eat it, right? The rest of the slab can be packaged up however you see fit. You could vac seal the whole thing and keep it in the fridge. Uh, you can portion it out into like one or two pound hunks and seal it up. You could slice it completely and then package up the slices, whatever you want to do. You could wrap it in butcher's paper. You can freeze it. It's your barbecue. Do what you want, right? If you just threw it in a Ziploc bag and kept it in the fridge, uh, you could expect two weeks of shelf life. Uh, technically, you could expect more than that, but because it is cured and cooked, so spoilage is going to come in the form of like surface mold growing. It's not going to be like a bacterial decomposition, right? It may discolor a bit if you just put it in a Ziploc bag because it'll oxidize. It might get a little gray around the edges, but it shouldn't really affect the flavor that much. Um, but yeah, two weeks refrigerated, six months frozen, do whatever you want to do with it. A note on slicing. I'm going to assume that you don't have a meat slicer, so you're going to be cutting it with a knife. Ideally, you would want to put the slab on a cutting board that is secure. I use these um, silicone hot pads under my um, cutting boards to keep them still. I just got them from Ikea. A damp kitchen cloth also works really well. But you want to make sure that your your cutting board isn't sliding around on you. You want to use a knife with the uh, quote-unquote thinnest blade. And by thin, I mean from the cutting edge to the top of the blade. 
Like if you imagine a meat cleaver, that's a, a thick knife in this case, because there's uh, the blade is three to four inches from the edge to the top. You know, like a meat cleaver is this big rectangular blade. You want to use a fillet knife or a boning knife. Um, ideally, the, because the reason is that it, it reduces the amount of steel that you're dragging through the meat when you're making your long, thin cuts. You don't want the edge of the knife cutting into the bacon and then having to pull another two inches of metal through that gash for the eight inches that it takes to go from one end of the bacon to the other to cut a slice, you know, to make it easier. You just use a thinner knife. A fillet knife is fantastic. When you cook your bacon, start it off on medium high heat. Start the bacon in the cold pan so that it warms up along with the pan. You want to turn it frequently. And remember, because you're not boiling off a bunch of water, you're you're basically cooking the meat and the fat from, from the get-go. This can go from a sear to being burnt very quickly. So you kind of want to be engaged and active with it. Flip it, flip it fairly frequently, keep an eye on it and uh, get it right to a perfect doneness. Also, most important thing, seriously, take a moment to just appreciate the smell of, of cooking homemade bacon because the aroma is like nothing else in the world. It's a pure expression of love and comfort that reaches your brain via your nostrils. And of course, enjoy. I hope, you, I hope it turns out great for you. I hope you love it. I hope you enjoy it. I hope the people you share it with appreciate um, not only the superior flavor, but also the craft that went into it. I mean, you turned raw pork into delicious, decadent bacon. Good job. Okay.